Church family, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and find the book of 1 Corinthians with me, I'd like to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You may have already picked up on it this morning in the beautiful song and worship that you participated in. We find ourselves today beginning to journey through the role of the Holy Spirit in the church and the relationship we have with him and the way in which he works in our lives. You cannot discuss the church without discussing the reality that at our core, this is a spiritual endeavor. People without knowledge of God, people who have rejected God can build buildings, can organize infrastructure, can build organizations and can sing songs, can hire communicators and can give speeches. What we do here has a physical quality. You are literally here or you're watching online through the gift of literal, physical, digital technology. You drove a real car, you parked in a real parking space, you Check your children into a real room this morning with a real teacher. There is a reality, a physical nature to what we are doing. There is structure and organization. Even I referenced a few moments ago that the need with some expenditures to expand physically. And all that matters. It's important to the degree that we do not forget that the church at her core is a spiritual being. We are, by definition, if you are a follower of Jesus, spiritually alive people. There is a physical aspect to who we are. There is an emotional aspect to who we are. But at our core, our souls are filled with the spirit of the living God. And that's a good thing. Can somebody say amen to that? I need spiritual change in my life because when you affect me at the level of my spirituality, the rest of me follows suit. You can modify a human being's behavior. You can whip a crowd into a frenzy. You can organize an army or a government. But if you want people to be truly changed, they must be changed from the inside. And so while the church should take advantage of every physical and financial and worldly piece of wisdom that does not disobey the word of God, she can never forget that we are the gathering of spirit-filled people who have been given the Holy Spirit to empower us to live a spirit-led life. Now, for many of you, that might not be foreign, though you perhaps would articulate it with different words. For some of you, it may be very close to your Christian experience. For others of you, you may have been raised in a traditional experience that was absent of the Spirit. There was a lot of Bible study. There were a lot of ceremonies. There was a lot of pageantry and process but as far as a spiritual life within you, that's something that's only now developing. 
You cannot separate the discussion of the Holy Spirit from the health of a church and, quite frankly, from the matters of a church. This is why this falls within this series beautifully. Church matters. What we do here matters. So church matters matter. It matters to the Lord how we handle the matters that arise within our faith family. If it matters to him, it should matter to us. It matters to the Lord that you and I understand and appreciate the presence of the Holy Spirit, his role in our lives, and the way in which he gives us the skills and abilities and and talents needed to serve him. Now, often when we want to condense all that into one noun, we will say the subject is spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts given to you and me by God. And over the next few weeks as we journey through chapters 12 and chapter 13 and chapter 14, We're going to be talking about these gifts, some of which we'll get very detailed in because they were a hotly debated topic in Corinth, and to be honest with you, they're hotly debated today. But before we ever dive into the challenges or points of confusion or struggles, let me just say, I'm excited to preach on this subject. I'm excited about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In fact, When a gift is received, the gift giver ought to be celebrated and appreciated. We ought to be thankful that our God gives us his spirit and the gifts we need to serve him. This is not a negative subject. It should not be a divisive subject. This should be something that brings us great joy. Can I just tell you today, before I tell you today what I'm going to tell you today, that you don't have to be left unable to serve the Lord. My seventh grade year at the Montevallo Middle School in Montevallo, Alabama, they allowed middle schoolers to sign up for the middle school band. I have no musical ability. I have no ability to read music. I cannot recognize what key I should be in versus the one I am in. I have a congregational voice. Sometimes I, by choice, leave my mic on when we sing because I get frustrated with men who won't sing in church. So I want them to hear their pastor who can't sing, sing, to encourage them to sing no matter what they sound like. Your boys, your sons need to hear you sing to the Lord. So when the Montevallo Middle School band signups started, I noticed something. The best-looking girls in the seventh grade were signing up for the band. (laughs) Moved by the Spirit, not the Holy Spirit. I said, I feel called to be in the band. It was just during the day, seventh period. It was not the marching band. It was just during the day. I thought, I'm going to do this. The first day we signed up for the band, they took us in. They put a record on a record player. They played it. You were supposed to write down the notes you heard. I knew no notes to write down. I just knew in church when we had the green, the blue, or the red hymnal, praise God. When the dots went up, I sang higher. And when the dots got lower, I sang lower. And if the dots were way far apart or the scales were, I might sing a little slower. That is the extent of what I knew. 
The kids that scored the highest got to choose their instrument. I was given my trombone. I did make it to fourth chair. There were four trombones in the Montevallo Middle School Band. <laughs> the irony of all ironies is, is that I was never identified as cognitively, academically gifted. Now, I asked my dad about this later in life because I have achieved some academic success and I use my mind best I can. My dad said, son, God's given you all you need in brain power, but what did you ever show anybody in middle school to make them think you ought to even be given the test to be gifted? The only thing you ever excelled in was lunch. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. I appreciate that. Be honest with your kids. If you'll shoot them straight, they'll end up in ministry or therapy. The other three trombonists were all in the gifted program, which meant that I was not only the worst trombone, I was the least intelligent one. We had a solo in one of the main pieces of our Montevallo Middle School Spring Concert. The first three notes were just the trombones. ba bon, bon, then everybody joined in. On the day we were to practice this solo, it was Gifted Education Day. So all my gifted friends were with the gifted education teacher doing something that gifted people do. I don't know. Never been invited into those rooms. <laughs> I got sent to a lot of rooms in school, but never that one. So on that day, with great trepidation, Mr. Weiss, the Montevallo Middle School Band Director, queued it up. He started, and I went, <laughs> he stopped, and he said, you really ought to consider football. <laughs> he was right. I not only did not have the ability to play the trombone very well, I didn't have the gift to do it. That is not true of any Christian. No Christian gets to say to God or to others, I don't have any spiritual gifts. I don't have any ability to be used by God through the direction of the Holy Spirit to make a difference in people's lives. No Christian, whether you're new to the faith and you've been a believer for six weeks or six decades, whether you lived a life of tremendous darkness and sin before you came to faith, or you came to faith in the purity and the innocence of a little child, never having strayed grossly from God's word. Whether you find yourself terrified by the thought of being in front of people or quite at home in leadership. It does not matter your personality type, your background, the struggles you faced. According to the testimony of the word of God, which I believe more than I believe my emotions are yours, you not only have been given gifts from God spiritually to serve the Lord, you have been given them in order that you may be a blessing to those around you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as Paul turns his attention toward this subject, he brings up the subject of spiritual gifts. It's right there in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual Gifts. If you look down in verse 4, and we're going to go through it verse by verse, but if you look in verse 4, now there are a variety of 
gifts. I, I don't often attempt to confuse you with uh, things that might take away from your understanding, but I also never want to miss an opportunity to teach you something. So the, the reason uh, that you have heard words that you've heard often has something to do with the original language. Let me just show you on the screen. The word in verse 4 for gifts is spelled this way in the Koine Greek, charismaton. That's how you would say it. And if you transliterate it into English, charismaton. It's from the root word charisma in the Greek, charisma. And this word originally meant gift. But this is also the word where we get the modern movement of charismatic. Many people in our church are members of our church, but you grew up in a charismatic church or you came to faith in a charismatic gathering of believers. And, and, and therein lies the issue that's often debated. But before we ever attempt to lovingly and sensitively deal with the differences of the charismatic church and a, a church with Baptistic theology like ours, I think it's important for you to remember that it all roots back to a gift. When we think about the ways spiritual gifts are abused, you could kind of put it into four categories. At times in churches, Specifically at times in the charismatic movement, they're overemphasized, or number three, they're over-elevated. In other words, that is the sole subject that is often focused on, even the, or either the display of spiritual gifts or the seeking of certain gifts to validate one's salvation, neither of which are biblical. But if you go to the other end of the spectrum, in some traditions, spiritual gifts are under-emphasized. They're under-elevated. They're not talked about in response to the charismatic movement of the last hundred years, especially in North America, but in other places. Churches that would not fall in line as charismatic theologically have swung so far the other direction that they've forgotten to inform their people that we ought to celebrate and enjoy and receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit and to use them. And the good news for this is that there's no denominational literature, there's no article, there's no magazine we ought to hang our hat on, there's no theological library. Let's go to the book. What does the book say? What does the Bible say about this subject? Have you ever gotten a gift and before you opened it, whoever gave it to you wanted to qualify in fact, if I were going to call this message anything, I would say this is the sermon entitled Before We Open Our Spiritual Gifts. You ever had that grandmother say, hey, 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 before you unwrap that now, I want you to know your mama and them pitched in on it. It's from you and you and you and you and, and you. Or, or, or they give you a two-part gift. Hey, when you open this, it's going to be confusing, but it'll make sense tomorrow when you get the gift that you're going to get tomorrow. Oh, okay. Well, Okay. Before we ever open our individual spiritual gifts, Paul starts not at the subject of defining every gift, but the subject of recognizing the foundation of spiritual gifts. This is why verse 1 is rather interesting. In verse 1, the Bible says, now concerning spiritual gifts, but if you were to translate that from the original text, the word gift is not there, it is supplied. The reason it's supplied is because ultimately he gets to that subject. But there's some pretty strong understanding among scholars who love God's word that he really has in mind spiritual people. You see, Corinth had had this debate as to who's spiritually superior to who. 
The problem is, is that the minute you begin to compare yourself to someone spiritually, you lose the heart of the gospel. Should we celebrate spiritual maturity? Sure. I would never encourage any believer in this room to seek life-changing advice or counsel from an immature Christian. I would always say that if you're facing a difficult decision, a broken relationship, a struggle with sin, go to mature men and women who have a long track record of consistently following the Lord and seek their wisdom because the maturity in the faith is usually the result of being wise in the word and it is reciprocal. The more you walk with the Lord, the wiser you become. The wiser you become, the more faithfully you walk with the Lord. This is why wisdom is, of course, one of those spiritual gifts. But Paul understood that there was this infatuation among some in the Corinthian church with who's spiritual and who's not spiritual. And what would be the defining characteristic of this mischaracterization? It would be who's got the most gifts? Whose gifts are most public? Who exercises their gifts every time we worship? And so Paul turns his attention toward spiritual people about spiritual gifts. And this is what he says. Look at God's word. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Four truths before we unwrap our spiritual gift. Truth number one. It's important for you to know that they're enabled by the Savior. Spiritual gifts start with the gospel. There is no spiritual gift in your life until the Holy Spirit is in your life. The Holy Spirit is not in your life until Jesus is the Lord of your life. Let me make that statement again. There is no spiritual gift in your life until the Holy Spirit is in your life. The Holy Spirit is not in your life until Jesus is Lord of your life. Why does Jesus have to be Lord of your life? Why must you be born again in order to have the Holy Spirit and therefore have the manifestation of the Spirit's gifts in your life? Because the Holy Spirit is fully God. There is one God. He has revealed himself in three persons. We will see the Trinity right here in just a moment. And because of that, God, the Spirit, just like God the Father and God the Son, cannot dwell in the presence of sin. Holiness is the prerequisite. Even as the Lord himself stooped to our level and lived on this earth, he never once broke God's law. Yet, because of his death on the cross for our place, when we are forgiven of our sin through the blood of Jesus being applied to us by our faith, we are cleansed of our unrighteousness and made, we're declared holy. This does not mean we cannot sin. It means that our eternal destination is heaven and that we have been declared to be righteousness by the identity of Christ placed in us by faith. So the tension a Christian lives in, I often talk to you about, is the now not yet moment. I am now a child of God. I have not yet fully seen all that that's going to be. But I now live by faith in that I am fully forgiven of all my sins, past, present, and future. And the evidence of being fully forgiven 
is that when I, apart from God's will, sin, I long to go back to him and claim that forgiveness again, to turn to him again and to be forgiven of that sin. This is what 1 John 1, 9 says. If you sin, confess your sin, and the Lord will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Saved people deal with their sin quickly. But it also means that upon the application of the blood of Jesus to my life and to your life, if you're saved, that now you are a dwelling place God can be within. So you are the tabernacle. You are the temple of God. And the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. And one of the signs of the Holy Spirit living in you is that you gladly declare you will not follow mute idols You will never curse the identity of Jesus, and you will declare with your life and your lips, Jesus is Lord. Now, with that in your mind, look at the verse and see how much more sense it may make to you. I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, verse 2, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Now, Paul here is referencing that authentic confessional language. People can read things off of a piece of paper. People can say things on a whim. He is talking about the seat of someone's heart, which bubbles up in the convictional confessions of their lips. Now, the interesting thing about this passage is that some have said, well, who in the world would Paul be writing to that might curse Jesus? There's a lot of debate as to what could have been taking place in Corinth. Uh, A couple of the best ideas, I think, is that there really were three groups of people. There were pagans who were chasing after false gods. Many of the Corinthian believers had lived that life. He says that. You were led away by mute idols. See the irony there? A mute idol means the idol cannot speak. So you've been led by a piece of wood or a piece of gold that cannot even speak, but you were led anyway, and we know why. The spirit of the evil one is at work in idolatry, even if he's not acknowledged. There were also Jews who believed in the God of the Bible but rejected Jesus. Ultimately, the people that turned against Jesus cursed him to death. And then there were Christians, both former Jews, former pagans, who said Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the dividing point. That's the real debate. This is another reason why that I have had in my life many people who are my friends and my brothers and sisters in Christ who I love genuinely, who might have a different view about a particular spiritual gift than me. But because we both land on our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, it is a loving debate we can have among friends. It is not something to divide us or to cause bitterness or anger. Whether somebody be extraordinarily stoic in their worship or someone be a passionate charismatic, if they love and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, they are my brother or my sister. Now, when we begin to think about this as a church, it matters that we start with the gospel, that we start with Jesus. In fact, later today, I'll be teaching a new member class. We do those monthly. And when I teach it, I'll take them to the book of Ephesians. 
And I'll talk with them about the importance of membership. And I will quote from Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Spirit's gifts. Mm -mm. The Father's gifts. No. According to the measure of Christ's gifts. Why do your spiritual gifts begin with Jesus? Because he's the victorious king. So, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high and led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So, Paul paints this beautiful picture of a king conquering an enemy. And when kings of old conquered an enemy, they took the spoils of war with them. They raided the bank accounts. They raided the fields. They raided the livestock. And when they would bring the spoils of war back into their kingdom, victorious, the loving kings, the beloved leaders, would give the gold and the livestock and all of the spoils to the people as a sign saying, I'm the victorious king. Well, Paul paints that picture. When Jesus ascends into heaven, never again to be crucified, never again to suffer, never again to stoop so low as to have humanity have power to put him to death. When he ascends and is made by God, King of kings and Lord of lords, he does not hoard the glory. He does not hoard the gifts. He gives them back to his people. He wants to bless us. And so there can be no discussion of your spiritual gifts until you are right with Jesus and in love with Jesus. And that's important because the second truth comes beginning in verse 4. It's important to recognize that these spiritual gifts are not only enabled by the Savior, they're explained really by the source. Look at verse 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in Everyone. Now, some of you like to write in your Bible. Some of you don't like to write in your Bible. This is one that whether or not you like to write in your Bible, you need to write this verse down. Verse 7 is the best biblical definition of a spiritual gift. It is so concise yet so complete. I want to read it to you. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. One of the most important gifts most young ladies dream about is a diamond. <laughs> Here are two beautiful diamonds. Actually, no, there's only one beautiful diamond. One is a diamond. The other is cubic zirconia. Can you tell the difference? Brother, she can. And if she can't, she'll take it to somewhere and see. One can be purchased for less than $100. The other one's a house payment. What is the difference? The source is the difference. Source matters. Before we ever go into a debate of well, what is the gift of tongues or what is prophecy today or 
Do people have the gift of healing today? Or what is, what is the gift of service look like? Before we ever dive into those subjects, we got to back up and remember, really understanding our spiritual gifts starts with our understanding of God. The greatness of God is seen in the variety of the gifts. Notice the Trinity in verses 4 and 5. Look what it says. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So understanding a spiritual gift starts with understanding the greatness of God that he would gift us. Now, I know that sometimes uh, we want to run past that which is elementary, but stay with me. So the God of the universe spoke the universe into existence. I am a creationist because I believe my Bible. And therefore, the God of the universe spoke the universe into existence and set in motion life and it's not only the one who set it in motion and sustains it, he is the one that continues to bless this world with life. If the Lord stopped holding all things, all things would fail, Colossians 1. And that God made a decision in his sovereign knowledge to create you. And before he made the decision to create you in the womb of your mother through the miracle of conception, he made a decision to send a redeemer to save you from the sin you had not yet committed before he decided to make you. And then he redeemed you if you're a believer. Many of you are. He found you. He revealed himself to you. The gospel was made known to you. It got to you. This is why missions matter. This is why missions conferences matter. This is why it matters that you get a passport. This is why it matters that you take your children to the nation. This is why it matters that we pray for God to raise up a, a, a generation of young people who will buy a one-way ticket and go to the places the gospel has not gone. The gospel got to you. And if you don't know the Lord, the gospel got to you in that you are sitting in a service where the gospel is proclaimed every single week. It got to you. You're responsible for what you do with it, but it got to you. The gospel got to you. The Holy Spirit convicted you, and by his grace, he redeemed you and saved you. So the God of the universe that spoke everything into existence and made the decision to create you, and before he made the decision to see you be born of your mother through the miracle of conception, he sent his son to die for you. Once you came of age of understanding, he revealed your need for a savior to you, convicted you of your sin, lovingly wooed you to him with his grace, saved you, and then he set his spirit in you, and the Holy Spirit is gifted you. If we don't start with the view of the greatness of God, you'll never not only discover, you'll never fully realize the potential of your gifts. I mean, think about the miracle that you are. I'm not interested in elevating our own identity above God. I'm saying to the glory of God, your life could have gone a million other directions. But here you are. And you're not here to set. You're here to serve. 
which is why the goodness of God is seen in the purpose of the gifts. I want to put that verse up on the screen. I don't normally put the verses on the screen that I'm preaching because I want you to be in your Bible. And, and we've been talking about that lately. But look at the five parts of this verse. To each, every Christian, is given. You don't earn a spiritual gift. You don't go get a spiritual gift. I had a sister once years ago who came out of the, uh, a, a very unbiblical charismatic movement. And she was taught that she had to go to certain evangelists to get a gift. No, no, no. The gift is given to you by the Lord. No human being has the power to give you a spiritual gift. They're not the source of it. The manifestation, the word is powerful. It means to bring into light, to show. To bring into light an aspect of the spirit. Does the spirit serve? Yes. So there are people with the gifts of service. Does the spirit speak? Yes. So there are people with the gifts of speaking. Does the Spirit show kindness and hospitality? Yes. So the Spirit wants people to have that gift to show kindness and hospitality. A manifestation of the Spirit, and here it comes, for the common good. The two extremes of abusing spiritual gifts are usually an over-infatuation, over-emphasis that puts the spotlight on the person with the gift or, sadly, someone never using their gift never finding their spiritual gifts, which then robs the church of their service. What is the purpose of a spiritual gift? For the common good of the church. This will help us as we navigate chapter 14 in a few weeks. When we begin to understand the chaos in Corinth over the issue of tongues and prophecy, Paul just keeps driving it home. What is best for the church? What makes the gospel known? What gives clarity? And as he does that, we begin to see back the echo of this. This is how it is explained through seeing God. Thirdly, it's important for you to understand that they are exemplified in service. Now we have a list. Let's look at our list, verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. That's not saving faith. That's just remarkably powerful faith, faith to trust God in difficult circumstances. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the work of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. Another translation there is languages. To another, the interpretation of tongues. So so Paul goes down this moment of listing the spiritual gifts. If you've studied the New Testament any, you'll know this is not the only place. In fact, there are several lists in the Bible, just graphically, Here's some prominent ones. Romans 12 lists a list of the Holy Spirit or gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, I just read that list to you. Ephesians 4 has a list. 1 Peter lists a couple. And some of you may be fast enough to notice that some of the gifts really are around the office to serve the church. And some of the gifts are manifestations of abilities. In other words, God gifts his church with pastors. These spiritually called, spiritually qualified men to lead the church spiritually. They are a gift to the church. The New Testament church was gifted with the apostles who not only led the church, they had been with the Lord and they wrote the New Testament. That was one of the defining moments in church history when they were trying to discern which 
of the books is of the Lord. And one of the requirements is that they must have apostolic authority. To have apostolic authority, they must have an apostle as an author. They were a gift to the church. When the canon, when the Bible was closed and finished, according to what John says in Revelation, it's finished, it's complete. The apostles died and went to be with the Lord. And now men who speak the word of God stand on the shoulders. I am not an apostle. I am a pastor. I do not have any revelation from God in me that's anywhere close to the inerrancy of the Bible. So the role of the pastor is then so freeing. From my own wisdom, I am not charged to tell you how to live your life. I am charged to read, understand, and explain what the apostles said. So now God speaks through what has already been spoken. And so these lists come to us. Learning the lists is important. But here's some other important truths. These lists are not exhaustive. We don't have any biblical evidence that Paul ever set out to say, here are the only nine spiritual gifts that exist, and there are no more. I go back to that definition in verse 7. Any manifestation of the Spirit, any activity or ability that is enabled by the Spirit can be that. They're also not in rank order. Again, this is one of those things we have to shy away from. As humans, we're drawn to people who have charisma, who have public gifts, And so we see a woman who leads worship passionately or we listen to a man who preaches passionately or we listen to someone who seems to have wisdom and discernment above ours and we naturally respect them. We should. We should honor our spiritual leaders. But we should never elevate them and say their gift is more valuable than the gift of the woman serving your children this morning. Somebody right now on this campus is on their knees on that concrete floor with their Bible open, teaching little four- and five-year-olds the Bible, and they are every much as valuable to the church as anything I do in this room. Long before I ever preached to hundreds or thousands, I can think of little old ladies that stumbled into small classrooms in rural churches and opened God's Word and taught me the Bible. In many ways, they're preaching to you this morning through the manifestation of the Spirit and God anointing their lives to use them to instruct me, to build within me a theology and a mind to instruct you. And any time we want to elevate a human being or some gift, we miss the common good. They all have one thing in common. Does this edify and build up the church or does it put the spotlight on the individual exercising the gift? If it's ever the latter, you've long since left the will and the word of God. They are exemplified in service. Finally, they're empowered by the Spirit. Look what the Bible says in verse 11. I'll close here. We have much more to say in the future. All these are empowered by the one, by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. I think that's powerful. One of the things that is a joy is to talk to a young man or young woman dealing with a call to ministry. And usually I will say to them, it is a good thing you want to have this conversation. But you know to understand something, if God has gifted you and called you to serve his church vocationally, you don't have a choice. It's not a suggestion. We don't dabble in ministry. 
We don't give it a run. If God has called you to something, if he's gifted you to something, that's his will, not yours. But one of the greatest, most freeing moments in my life was getting to a place where I realized, if you called me to it, you'll call me through it. If, if, if this is your will for my life, as ill-equipped and unqualified as I feel, you will supply the gifts and abilities needed. And what I found in ministry is that as long as that is our heart, it just flows and flows and flows. And that's not just true of exclamation or exhortation. It's true of service, of hospitality, of compassion, of care, of faith, of all those spiritual gifts that are in operation today for the church. They must be powered by the Holy Spirit. You ever seen the advertisement of the pink bunny that flip-flops on, that hits the bass drum? You haven't. You know why? Because they're not advertising the pink bunny. I've never seen that commercial and thought they were trying to get me to buy a pink bunny. Probably somewhere in some box at my house in the attic or in my little girl's room, there's a pink bunny. She's infatuated with pink, dark pink. She's very specific. She's going to be some other man's problem one day. <laughs> she knows exactly what she wants. She gave me five instructions the other day about how to make her oatmeal. I said, I am not your mother. I make your oatmeal the way I want to make it. Then she didn't eat it. Mm. Lord, just let me get her to about 20. <laughs> this is not an advertisement about a pink bunny. It's a battery advertisement. It's got nothing to do with the bunny. It's got everything to do with the bunny that keeps going and going and going and going. One of the, most, one of the ways to exhaust yourself is to try to use your own natural ability to serve the Lord out of your giftedness. Now, it doesn't mean that everything you do in the church or everything you do for your family or everything you do for the Lord has to line up perfectly with some gift you've identified. I've heard people use an excuse not to do hard things by saying, well, that's just not my area. Nobody on this campus is gifted at changing diapers. But people do it because it needs to be done. No, no, nobody's gifted at being here at 2 and 3 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon, setting up and breaking down tables. I promise you, none of those guys who were so kind and helped you park your car this morning had a revelation in a worship service where the Lord God himself spoke in King James and said, Hither thou unto the parking team thou wast go. <laughs> but there is a gift of service and humility and grace and kindness. And they have to be empowered by the Spirit. So how do you unwrap your gift? Real quick, jot, jot this down real quick. How do you find your gift? I don't recommend spiritual gifts inventories as a first line of finding your gift. If you've ever heard of them, it's just a test you take. And it really has a lot to do with your personality. It's not a bad thing. Every time I take one, the same gifts come up. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it shouldn't be the first strategy. Here they are real quick. I'm going to go through them very quickly. Number one. Surrender any selfish agenda. In other words, if you're serious about finding and operating in your spiritual gifts, take all your pre-made decisions 
to the side and say, Lord, I just want to do what you've called me to do. So if there's anything in my heart that would distract me from discovering my gift or my gifts, some Christians have many, all are guaranteed at least one. Number two, seek the Lord. Like there's just nothing wrong with you saying, Lord, would you show me my spiritual gifts? Would you show me how you want me to serve you? I I just think it would be really cool if every person in this room prayed that prayer this week. Some of you may know your gifts. It may be, Lord, show me better ways to use it. Or, Lord, show me gifts that I have not discovered. Number three, surround yourself with godly people who will speak into your life. The reason I'm your pastor today is because there were people when I was really dealing with whether or not I was worthy of this position who said to me as a young man, you need to preach the rest of your life. That is your gift, and you would be sinful to not use it. And then it made it not about me. And all of a sudden I realized I would be robbing the Lord of what he wanted to do with my life if I decided that I just wasn't worthy to be anybody's pastor. Number four, serve in a variety of ways. I've never met anybody who sat with their arms folded, disinterested in serving in the church, discovered their spiritual gift. Serving in a variety of ways may help you know what you are naturally good at and gifted at, that the Spirit empowers, and it may show you that there may be some areas you thought you would be passionate about only to find that's not in your giftedness. I realize at times the church has been hurt by debate over specific gifts. But let me tell you something. The greatest damage this subject does to the church is the unused gifts of followers who won't serve. If every person in this room would seek the Lord in your giftedness, I believe a fresh wind of energy and passion and encouragement will not only be welcomed into your life, but it will make a difference in someone else's. Don't ever forget this. I wasn't there the day many of you got saved. I wasn't there. Maybe I was. Maybe you were saved right in this room under my preaching. But many of you got saved somewhere else, under someone else's ministry, by someone else who led you to Christ. I rejoice in that. Aren't you glad they used their gifts? Aren't you glad that there were people in your life using their spiritual gifts before you had spiritual gifts to use? Let's use them together. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity to open this subject. I rejoice in a good God who gives good gifts. You love us and you have given us the opportunity and the privilege to serve you. And I'm so thankful you have not left us giftless. We are not lacking anything. There's a movement of God happening in places in our nation. We're seeing revival on campuses. We know that your spirit is willing and ready to work in our lives. Why not here, Lord? Why not right now? Church family, I'm going to say amen, and we're just going to open the altar this morning.
It may look like the end of an aisle. It may look like a concrete stage with steps to the left and the right. Friend, I want you to know if you'll meet the Lord here, it will become an altar. And I just want you to respond as the Spirit leads. Maybe you want to come and pray over your gifts and ask the Lord to give you more grace to use them. Maybe you want to pray a prayer of discovery. Lord, show me and teach me. Maybe you want to repent of your sin and trust Christ and invite Him to be your Savior. Whatever you want to do in this moment, I want you to feel the freedom to do that. As you come and as you kneel and as you pray quietly, the rest of us will worship around you. Just please, don't not respond. Father, you move now as only you can. In Jesus' name.